Good morning, everybody. If you have your Bibles, please open to Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 through 31 today. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Father, we thank you, Lord, for our relationship that we have with Christ. We thank you that through the cross, you have made it possible for us to be at peace with you. And so, Father, we come to you, Lord, uh, desiring to hear from you, Lord, that you would speak to us from your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would comfort us with these words today. Uh, Father, we are um, just thankful, Lord, for how good you are to us. Father, I pray that you would fill our hearts with gratitude and thankfulness uh, and adoration of you. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 10, verse 26. Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. And Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us now. In Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, pop quiz. Did anybody catch a theme in today's passage? Anybody? Do not fear. Three times in these verses that it, it, it comes up. Um, it, in researching do not fear, this seems to be a theme that is all through the Bible, that God constantly is telling his people, do not fear, have courage, um, trust me. Uh, I did a little word study and a Google search trying to figure out how many times does this phrase or this thought sort of appear in the Bible? Um, some suggest there are 365 days, and I think that that was more marketers who wanted to publish uh, devotional for, you know, do not fear 365 times. But it's a real common, if you Google it, a lot of people say, oh, it's 365 times throughout the Bible. Then there are others who sort of push back and say, well, really, it's only like 311 or 302, depending on how you count. And and um, to me, it's, it's overwhelming. If it's only said once, that's one thing. But this idea of not fearing, having peace, it's throughout the word of God that God wants us not uh, to be fearful, that, that we can trust, we can have peace. We really don't have to worry about things. Uh, I do believe that I have the spiritual gift of worry. I've said this over the years. I've, I struggle with this. Um, but if we take anything home today uh, from this message, my hope is that you would come to understand that God doesn't want you to be afraid. And so we begin. We have in verse 26 this, this therefore. This is a, a word that should always trigger. Uh, throughout chapter 10, there's a number of these therefores that sort of uh, trigger something that's already been discussed. And so this phrase, therefore, do not fear them. Uh, as sort of an introduction, uh, we need to answer the question, the therefore, why is this therefore, therefore, 
We have some questions. We need to know what's it referring to. We have questions about who's this them that it's referring to. Therefore, do not fear them. So there's this, uh, something's going on previous to this phrase. uh, But in this phrase, we learn that there's a cause for fear, that that the, the people that Jesus is speaking to, that they have fear for something, or there could be fear for something regarding this them. Now, in backing up to get us sort of in the context of this passage, we really have to go back to the end of chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. Uh, Jesus is going with his disciples, and we see that Jesus has deep compassion as he looks out upon Israel. He sees the lostness of humanity, that they're, um, they're sort of sheep without a shepherd. There's no, they're just not walking with God. They don't know God. They're lost. And at the very last verse of chapter 9, Jesus says, Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers in his field. He said, there's so many of them. You need to pray to God that God would raise up workers and that he'd send them out to to meet the needs of these people. And then in verse 1, well, really 1 through 4, Jesus then, we have the calling of the disciples as apostles. The 12 apostles are listed in pairs of two. Um, They were being commissioned to be sent out. It's the only time in Matthew where Matthew refers to the 12 disciples, which disciple means learner. Um, It's the only place where he refers to them as the apostles, the sent ones. And the picture sort of that, in my mind, is that Jesus has his 12 guys. He has them huddled up. He's he's a a coach or a commander that's about to send them out on on a mission, sort of a short-term mission. He limits them to the region of Galilee by forbidding them to go to the Samaritans or the Gentiles, that they were to go to the lost sheep of Israel. They were to proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand. And this is really the theme of Matthew. Uh, Matthew is a Jewish man writing to a Jewish audience. He, the aim of all of the gospel of Matthew is to show to the Jew that Jesus is the king, the Messiah, And he presents evidence all through, sort of legally, showing that Jesus fits the bill, that that he is indeed the Messiah. And so we see these 12 men, these 12 Jews who who submit to him, who follow him, who recognize um, that he is the king. And he's about to send them out as sort of a a testing ground for them as uh, to prepare them for after Jesus' departure. Verses 7 through 15, he gives them clear instructions over what they're to be doing, how they're to be doing this. And then from 16 to 23, some problems occur. I don't, I don't want to say problems. There's no problem. The task sort of becomes less appealing. They're, they're not going to be getting per diem to be staying at the Marriott. They're not going to have certain hours. They're not going to be received well by people it's in verse 17 that we realize or we can figure out who this uh, in verse 26 do not fear them we begin to see who the them is in verse 17 he says but beware of men now this sort of caught my attention because he's going to say in verse 26 three times in our today's passage do not fear do not fear do not fear but he's already told them to beware of these guys because these guys intend them to do harm. So this, this fear that they would be feeling is 
It's a legitimate fear. So often our fears are not based on something legitimate. I'm, I, as a master of worry, I can build up all kinds of stuff in my head that never comes to fruition, that there's not even, it's just not even something that I should even be worried about, but I'm very gifted, and so I'm very good at being able to do that. But in this case, he says, beware of men. Now, why should you beware of men? He's going to say that they're going to send you to the courts in the synagogue. They're going to send you before governors, kings. It's going to be bad, but you're going to do this. You're going to be sent before these guys as a testimony to the Jews and also to the Gentiles. He goes on to say, by the time you get to verse uh, 22, you will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through all the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. And he goes on to say, a teacher is not above his, a student, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they've called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? So Jesus says, all this stuff is going to be bad. They've already called me, uh, Satan's basically the king of Satan. Uh, er Earlier in Matthew, we saw that. He talks about these these, the difficult times that are going to come to them. And I see these guys sitting there hearing this sort of, this isn't good. Like, this is kind of scary. Do, do I want to continue down this path? What's going to happen to me? We know that all of these men, Judas, Judas there's a question mark, but, but all of these men would at some point in their life stand before somebody and, and the, the issue of capital punishment would be given to them. Even John, who survived, he, was, he faced capital punishment. He was, they, they gave him capital punishment. He just served or survived the capital punishment that they placed upon him. And so I see, I don't know about you, but if I place myself in the story and hear about what Jesus is saying, my adrenaline would be going, my fear would be taken over. Like, how did I get myself into this? Like, I was pretty happy uh, fishing. I was pretty happy um, collecting taxes, making money. And I think that Jesus, he, he understands the anxiety or the fear that they were facing. And he says to them, therefore, do not fear them. So this, therefore, the reason that Jesus is about to go into this is, therefore, you're going to have man coming after you. There's going to be great persecution. Things are not going to go your way in this life, but don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of them. Now, the reason this for is another key word, this for is, but therefore, most times looks backwards. A, a for sort of tells you that, that it's looking forward. So therefore, do not fear them has to deal with stuff that's already happened. Then we see this four, and he's about to explain in the rest of this verse sort of the reason why he says don't fear them. And he says, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made, will not be known. Basically, Jesus says there's nothing that's concealed or hidden. Uh, concealed, 
there, there's, there's a lot of discussion over what does this mean in this section. Is he talking about, um, is he dealing with God's revelation that has been con- concealed up to this point? We see throughout Scripture a slope revelation of God's unfolding plan for humanity. We, we have the whole Bible, but the whole Bible didn't just appear in Genesis 1-1 all at once. Um, God, slowly to mankind, began to reveal things. And at the time of the saying, the New Testament had been written it, that, that revelation would come and that God would continue to expose his truth uh, that nobody could hide from it. Now, on the other side of the coin, people said that maybe it's a both and here that this dealing with uh, or hidden that will not be made known, that this is sort of dealing with uh, one's sin um, in their hearts. We can go around and I can fool you guys about my sin. It's very easy for us as people to go around and put on a good exterior, but, but be totally rotten on the inside, like picking up that piece of fruit that you think looks so delicious and you turn it over and you're like, oh, can't tell you how many times that happens. I don't know why when I go to the grocery store, I buy so much fruit. I should buy like one piece at a time and let it be consumed. And then, but we live in Valley Center, so you got to stock up and you got to be ready. And I think that the point of this is sort of all of this. Jesus says, you're going to go through this persecution. You're going to suffer at the hands of the religious leaders. You guys are going to be killed. They will take your lives. But a day is coming. When the, I believe he's saying that the truth of God, that, that, that who God is, what he's revealed to us, it'll be made perfectly clear to every single person of all time. And every single sin that's in your heart that you've done, uh, hiding behind uh, religiousness, that the sinfulness of what you've done and who you are will be exposed That these religious leaders who were supposed to be the voice piece for God doing this great uh, persecution upon the the, the apostles and to the early church and to the church in general, all of this stuff will be, know, be made known how off they are. That there'll be this great exposure. I think Jesus says in this very first, uh, therefore do not fear them. The reason you shouldn't fear them is because a, a, a reckoning day will come when all of the injustices will be made known. Nobody will be able to hide. Everything will be exposed for how it is. And you can take comfort to know that I am God and God is in control and God has everything happening just as he sees fit. So don't be freaking out over every little thing or every major thing of persecution like your lives being taken. Take courage. He goes on. He says, what I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. I don't know... Discourse number two in Matthew, at what point in, in, uh, in their lives in Jesus' earthly ministry did this happen? We know that Jesus' earthly ministry uh, was about three years. I believe this probably happened some point into their, their ministry, so maybe two years that Jesus had, uh, teaching them, equipping them, preparing them uh, for the next step in their life. But, but I, I love this. I love that Jesus takes the time to equip them, to prepare them. He doesn't just launch them out on this mission. He spent a ton of time where Jesus is doing the ministry. He then pulled them aside and said, let me explain this to you, why I did this, why I said that. They'd say, Jesus, I don't understand this parable. Can you go over that parable again? It doesn't make sense to us why you said that to those people. And Jesus would take the time and explain things to them. 
but eventually they'd be launched out. But I, I love this, that there's this expectation that there's this, that as we come to Christ, you're not expected to just get saved one day and then go defend the faith to the greatest scholars of this time that are, that are, that are like the liberal scholars going against order. Yeah, you're not expected to do that. That there's this sort of this time of discipleship, growing, getting to know Christ, understanding who God is through studying his word, that there's this preparation period. In the last few weeks, we've had a lot of, you know, we're, 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 we've taken a hobby to the, to the next level. I, uh, you know, we got a new puppy a few months ago, and uh, we sent him out to, to dog boot camp, and, but they're, they're duck hunters. And so Grace is kind of at the age where she's been looking for, you know, we've been kind of figuring out, she wants to start running a gun dog. And so I'm like, we can do this. This is, I'll be all on board. Do you hunt? No, that's a question. Do you hunt? No, not at all. But I, I have friends that do, and I'll just go hunting with them, but I don't need to hunt. I just, I'll work the dog. And, and so we, we've been going out there once a week, and we go out there yesterday. Apparently, there's a big, big, big dog hunting contest about to go down in a couple weeks in North Carolina. And this place, Rainy Ranch, up, it's right by Lake Henshaw up in the mountains there. And, and they have a bunch of dogs that are going to this national qualifying contest. And so we we're, we're, we're picking up our dog on Friday, and we're down the pond. We're just, like, trying to teach the little guy how to swim. You know, he's, he's graduating to swim, like, start fetching with him. He's at the stage where you throw stuff, and he kind of will run to it and then just walk back with nothing. And it's like, oh, man, we bought a, we, our dog's a failure. This is terrible. And, and the guy's like, no, 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 we're just in the process. You got it. It just takes time. So God's working on my patience. I, uh, that's a different story. <laughs> we're on trust, fear, no fear. Um, and so then Grace had said to them, like, I've never seen a, a hunt test go down. I, I, what am I getting myself into? And the owner's like, Steve's like, hey, we'll take you out there. I'll show you what, what my dog, what we do, what we're preparing to do. And so as we're stopped there, all of a sudden I hear like all these duck sounds, like artificial duck sounds, quack, quack, quack. I hear explosions and then birds being launched, like dead birds that have been frozen, launched into the sky. And then all of a sudden... I see this, like, this dog, maybe two, three hundred yards at full speed, as fast as it can possibly go. It's just sprinting down the hill. And I'm like, that's amazing. And then all of a sudden I hear a whistle, and the dog comes skidding to a halt, spins around, is looking up at the owner, just sitting there, perfect. Then the guy like does like this, and then the dog just takes off running the other direction. One whistle, dog blows, and this, this dog's like crazy, finds the duck, and then beelines back to the owner and i'm like that is so cool (laughs) like amazing like to watch it and 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 then um so then later there's a bunch of people that are uh, i'm kind of merging my story so it's later in the day but you guys don't need to hear all the details but i'm so then all of the hunters who i don't even know if they're hunters but they're guys who are getting ready to run their dogs um in this test they're all in their lawn chairs, and I kind of walk up, and we're kind of watching, and, and, and they look at me, and they're like, oh, so you got a dog that's about to run? And I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. My dog's working on trying to, like, walk on a leash right now. We're, 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 and they're like, oh, no, no, it's okay. Like, it just takes time. It takes, and I'm looking at this picture of what these dogs can do, but they, they weren't just born and then amazingly did this. It was that the trainer had spent so much time, like years with these dogs and 
helping them grow into the dog that they were created to be by God, that these dogs within themselves have been created by God to, to have this desire to retrieve. And, and the trainer spends time and then they go. And I'm looking at my trainer going, I just want my dog to be able to like, when I throw a tennis ball, that'll go get it and bring it back to me. He's like, we can do that. And if you want to take it all the way out little, we can do that too. We can, it just takes time. And I'm sitting here thinking about what Jesus says. When I tell you in darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim it upon the housetops. That Jesus took time with them. Basic obedience. (laughs) How to walk on a leash. This is part of the beauty of this class that's happening with Is These are Christian disciplines. How do we grow in our relationship with God? Really, our Bible studies, being in fellowship. But there comes a time in our Christian life when we're expected that we should, in our relationship with Christ, that we should be able to handle more extreme challenges. Like if we were dogs, we should be able to do multiple marks for multiple dogs and sit still and go when God says go and stop when God says stop and then come back. But if we turn our Bibles over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, there is biblical, I'd say, validation behind this. But look what Paul writes to the Corinthian church that was a disaster. See, I I think of the Corinthian church sticking with the dog theme. It reminds me of my old dog, Linus. Great, sweet guy, real nice. But he wouldn't walk on a leash. Your sandwich wasn't safe around him. Uh... I mean, you guys know Lion. I mean, he's just, a, he's just a great old country dog, but don't try to get him to do anything that he doesn't want to do because he's not going to do it. And this Corinth church was this church. They'd come to Christ, but there was no forward movement. They, they weren't growing. They weren't becoming like Christ. They weren't uh, growing in their relationship with him that they could hear his voice and be obedient to him and listen to the directions and instructions that God has been given. Look what Paul writes in verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, Are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? So you, it's sort of a beauty that God's graciousness that that we can come to a saving knowledge of Christ. I think there are some people who take the name Christ that aren't saved, but they claim to be Christians. And I believe that they're carnal Christians who are are legitimately are are saved. Paul in Corinthians, he talks about that you're going to make it to heaven, but you're going to have like smoke in your hair. Like that you're going to make it in, but everything's going to be burned away. And, and Paul's driving and the word of God is driving us towards maturity. And as Jesus is coaching them back in Matthew, he says, what I whisper to you in your ear. You've had time to process this. You had time to understand this. Now I want you to go to the rooftops. And in Israel, the roofs were like a patio. Everybody was outside. It wasn't like an inside environment. And you could go up there and you could just proclaim these truths. And then all of your neighbors would hear you. 
He said, when I told you in darkness, teaching after hours, after I'd been out doing all the ministry, and we'd, we'd, we'd come home and I, I would explain to you guys what I was doing. Now it's your turn to go out in the light and do these things. And like them, I believe that we also, if you are a Christian, maybe you got saved last week. Well, that's, it's great. You should start growing and, and learning. But, but how long have you known Jesus? Like, just in your mind, how long have you known him? Like, I'm somewhere coming up, I think next year is coming up on my, like, 20-year anniversary time frame of when I have came to know the Lord. And maybe you came to the Lord five years ago. Maybe you came to the Lord 30 years ago, 40 years ago. But what, what, what's God done in your heart? How, how are you walking with him? Are you growing? Is, is maturity happening? Or are you still drinking milk? And we're supposed to grow. God wants us to grow. He has so much more in store, and yet we hold on to our flesh and our, our old ways. He goes from there and he says, do not fear again. So number the second time, so time number one, don't fear these guys. The truth is going to be made known that nothing concealed is going to remain concealed, that there's going to be great exposure. I think he's telling them, hey, you're going to be part of this. Like I've commissioned you to, to participate. So everything that I've taught you, everything I've shared with you, it's your job to, to help this exposure. Then he says, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. This one struck me. Jesus has his 12. He says, do not fear those who kill the body. How many of them would be killed? Well, there's 12. Judas died. That's a whole other that I will save for a few minutes to talk about him. I don't think he qualifies the the 11 of them they all would stand before a court and be given the decision to either submit to man or to continue on their way and face the death penalty and 11 of them continued on their journey to death because they refused to turn on christ and here jesus says do not fear those who kill the body. And, and I read this, and I, I almost don't even think that any of us in this room are qualified. Like I don't, I, yeah, I, I don't think in my life that I will ever be placed in the position to where my life is on the line, or even life in prison or any sort of prison, to where my obedience to Christ would result in either death or imprisonment. I. I and then there's my comedian side that here's an old coach in my head kind of going, don't sell yourself short, buddy. Like you can do. But I read this and I don't like I read over. They don't fear those who kill. But oh, I'm not really worried about my body being killed. But Jesus is speaking to those who they they will be killed. Much of the early church will be killed. Christians all over the world today. And many of them are facing severe persecution. And death. It says, do not fear those who kill the body and are unable to kill the soul. They, all they can do to you is take your life. 
And I can hear all of you because you're just like, hey, yeah, but that's a lot. <laughs> but Jesus' perspective is eternal. Like that, that, that there's so much more than what we see and feel and touch in this life. This is only a, a, a small snapshot of reality. He says, don't fear, fear them. All they can do is kill you. They can't even, they can't harm your soul. They can't, the things that matter, they have no control over. He, he then goes and says, but rather fear him. So there's three do not fears and there's one fear here. And he says, fear him, God, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, now I don't, you could so take this and, and manipulate this to make it say something that it's not. You know, a good old fire and brimstone message that God has the ability to send people but their bodies and their souls to hell. He has that authority. The, the message of this, the thrust of this whole passage is comfort, is do not fear. And the issue, the way that this is handled is Jesus says, God, your father, he is the one that has authority over all. The strongest person, the strongest force that you face in this life is nothing compared to God. So don't fear them. Fear the one who has ultimate authority. And all through the Bible, we see this command to fear God, to have this healthy respect for him. Proverbs tell us over and over again that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and understanding. That if your worldview says there is a God and I'm going to be accountable to him and he has revealed to me how I should live my life, how I should treat others, how I should worship. That if I deviate from that, I'm going to give an account to him, but I'm going to respect him because I have an account. And I'm not afraid to say that when I'm in a fight with my wife, nine times out of, I mean, probably more like nine thousand, like almost always it's my fault. Like I can, I can, I'm most the, the, the reason that it's, that if there's a spat, it's I'm to blame. And we're not in a spout right now, so it's really easy for me to talk about this. Like, I'm not even, this isn't a confession right now. <laughs> a lot of times, it's actually actually like there's an apology to my wife while I'm preaching, um, <clears throat> but not today. Um, but but there is something that in, in, in it was 14 years of marriage is nothing compared to a lot of people. That when I'm wrong, I've learned over the last decade that you know what I don't want my relationship to be soured with God. And so because I'm going to give an account to him, it's made it so much easier for me to like, immediate, like not, I don't want to say immediate, I'm not to immediate yet because there's still a cooling off. But, but what used to take like two, three weeks now is within an hour or two or a day, sometimes a day. But, but it's a lot easier to like humble myself and say I was wrong and I was acting immature and it was like I was being selfish. And it's the fear of God that's, help me in these areas and in, in, in all like in a, more than just my marriage that's i think marriage is where you kind of learn like that's like really um, because of the intimacy of that relationship other relationships it, it's it's easier to kind of hide out of things um but this whole but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body and hell and I've been reflecting on this and thinking about what these men went through. The, tr- the true fear, the, the, tr- the, the reality that their 
following after Christ, they knew would likely result in their, um, maybe not at this point, but, but later following the death, burial, and resurrection, they, they definitely understood that following Christ would come with a cost. The majority of Christianity has understood that their decision to follow after Christ would result in severe, true persecution. And when I've sort of reflected on this whole passage, like I, I don't identify with this. Um, the, the one thing that's, that's come up to me that I'm aware of, I'm sure there are many others that, that God hasn't shown me, but, but the one time in my life that I have the most remorse in being more afraid of man than God was... And I don't even know what year it was. It must have been 1999. To say it haunts me to this day would be a little bit melodramatic. I don't think it haunts me. But there is in me wishing I could go back and wishing that I could be obedient. And around 1999, I'd been a Christian for almost three years at that point. I found myself in the weight room of SEAL Team 3. Don't worry, I wasn't lifting weights or anything. I was just getting a drink of water. That's where the water fountain was. But my, my, my best friend that I had gone through, Tommy Retzer, that I had gone through training with, um, we were swim buddies. We were always together. He, he, we, <clears throat> we happened to be in town at the same time, and he was in the weight room actually working out. I was getting a sip of water, and it was sort of one of these, hey, Tom, hey, Gunnar, how, how's it going? And we started sharing. I'm like, yeah, I have this one deployment. I'm about to go. I'm deployed to the Middle East. And when I get back, I'm going to Bud's first phase. Um, or I, I forget the details of what I said at the time. Um, and he said, yeah, well, I'm about to screen for green team, which is SEAL Team 6. And he's like, so I'm basically preparing for the test. And, and then hopefully by the summer, I'll be gone. And so that was the last time I saw Tom. He was, he was killed in 2003 in Afghanistan. But during this whole conversation, I was arguing with God. I don't think I heard God's voice like audibly. I didn't hear it audibly, but it was as clear as day that God that whole time kept saying, you tell him that you became a Christian. You share with him about what's happened to you. You share with him. And I'm like going to God, God, this guy, like we got in a ton of trouble together. He knows everything about me. Like if I tell him, he's just going to make fun of me and it's going to be bad. And I'm not going to, and it was a 15-minute tug-of-war with God. Like, not even tug-of-war. This is a fight. And me telling God, no, I'm not going to share. I'm not going to tell him. I'm not going to tell him. And God, I, you tell him, you tell him, you tell him. And it was the most willful disobedience that I've ever think had towards a clear, my understanding that God was leading me to do something. And I just said, no, God. And when I got word that my buddy was killed in Afghanistan... There's been years of like fishing for, is there any evidence that anybody anywhere ever shared with him Christ? And there's none that I'm aware of. And so every Memorial Day, when I go to his grave, I, I, I kind of like pray like, Lord, I hope that somehow deep down, like that there was something. And I don't know how many times in my life, like that was one where I, I, I willfully, I, I know it without a doubt. I don't know how many times I pass somebody and I think, oh, I should do this and I don't or But this is what comes to mind. And the issue was that I feared man more than I feared God. That I was willing to tell the creator of the universe, no, I, I refuse to do that. 
thankfully, God is, you know, bigger than me. Um, God is merciful. God is kind. I, I thank, I am just so thankful how he's led me and leads us. It says, don't fear. fear. Fear him who can destroy both your soul and your body that has the power to cast them into hell. He, he continues to expand on this point, and he says, are not two sparrows sold for a cent? Huh? <laughs> Where are we going? I go, well, are not two sparrows sold for a cent? Now, it's easy for us to look at sparrows. Like, how many of you guys, anybody have experience with sparrows in the room? I, I, I don't. Well, maybe the, the, are those the sparrows, are they sparrows of San Juan Capistrano or the swallows? Those are swallows. Now, a sparrow... From my research, this, well, it's obviously a bird, and birds can fall from the sky at death. But he says, are not two sparrows sold for spent? A, a sparrow was an appetizer that they would have in the meal. It was, all illustrations break down, have their shortfalls. But all week, when I see sparrow, what I've been thinking of in Southern California, you go to a Mexican restaurant, what do you expect? Tortilla chips and salsa. How much do you guys pay for those chips and salsa on the table? Zero, right? I would get, I, I mean, I would be so mad if suddenly like tor- corn prices skyrocket. I mean, corn prices have skyrocketed and corn chips are still free at a Mexican restaurant. Th- this was sort of the appetite. The, 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 the scent is translated because the, the monetary value that Jesus actually says here is so insignificant that they can't, the translators can't even think of anything to show how like invaluable the sparrow was. This is like chips and salsa for us. And so I, now chips and salsa don't fall from the sky, but they do fall from the table. And so for us, I think understanding what Jesus is saying, let's just, let's just sort of view this as chips and salsa. He says, are not two sparrows sold for, are chips and salsa free when you go to the Mexican restaurant? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Kind of like showing the, the sovereignty, whether they fall dead out of the sky or, or it could be that they were appetizers. They literally fell and you, you wouldn't eat it. Well, unless you got it within five seconds. I don't know what their policy was back then. There was, there was a lot of stuff on the ground back then that isn't now. Like I, he says, God knows. God, God, even the sparrow, God is aware of. And I think there's enough biblical evidence that you could say that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-everything. That when you are eating chips and salsa and the crumb or a chip falls on the ground, God knows. That didn't slip past him. He didn't reach his his capacity and understanding. And I think it's like, okay, so God knows everything. What's that have to do with me being, being killed by these guys? And then he goes on to say, but the very hairs of your head are numbered. Now, I read this and I... I can't tell you, ever since I've been a Christian, I've been hearing this verse and bald guys making jokes about this, like, well, that's easy to do for me or, or you know, sparing. But it, it really, it doesn't say that God knows how many hairs are on your head. Look what it says in every single translation. But the very hairs on your head are all numbered. That doesn't say that God knows how many, I mean, we can infer God knows how many hairs on our head. But he's pointing to the detail 
that every hair on your head has a number, like an assigned position. The average human, I haven't counted anybody, 140,000 hairs is what they say, hairs on your head. And this one is like gunners. Well, I can't even grab one. Gunner, 1,222 pluck. Like that everyone has their number. Like all of us have our distinct numbers. That God is so great and so mighty and all-knowing that each one of the hairs on our head has a specific number. Which I would go on to say that the bald guy probably has, like that's an even a more amazing task. That like every hair follicle hole that's still there on the bald guy, like God knows it's a, it has a number. And so if you're bald and all your hair is gone, well, God could find all of your hair and put all of the, I mean, think about this. This is probably, we shouldn't go here, but like, like in our resurrected bodies, God's going to find all of your hairs and put them back in the right spots. Like it's not just any hair. It's like your hairs will be put back by number in the correct place. That might be a stretch, but, but the very hairs of your head, like they're numbered. God, God knows when a sparrow falls from the sky. He's aware that it doesn't happen outside of his control. Every single hair on your head has a specific number by God. I still think, well, so, okay, so God knows all of that. What does this mean? And he gets to his point in verse 31 for the third time. So do not fear. Don't fear. Anything bad that happens to you, any persecution, anything that's going to happen to you by these religious leaders, there's going to be a reckoning. Things that are concealed, things that are hidden, everything's going to be exposed. The truth of who God is, what he said, is going to be revealed to all. There will be no hiding. There'll be no slipping away. There'll be getting, no getting out of, uh, on a technicality. The second one, do not fear those who can just kill your body. They have no control over your soul. They have no control over the things that matter eternally. That We're, we're just here for a moment. Like, Life is but a flash before our eyes. Even if you were to get, say, 300 years on this earth, that's still nothing in light of eternity. And then he says, don't fear. That you're so much more valuable than a sparrow. And God knows that even these sparrows, he knows that the number's on your head. This is a powerful, powerful lesson. That Jesus is trying to drive home. That God cares for you. God loves you. He knows you more intimately than anyone. He knows you inside out. He knows every possible thing about you. Your, your life isn't random. When you die is not random. That our days are numbered by him. And so when I look at this and I realize how I, I believe, I'm not going to sell myself short, but it's very unlikely that I think in my life that I'm going to stand before somebody and they say, recant your commitment to Christ or face death. I hope that I would be able to like stand strong. But the reality is this is like one of those, well, it's kind of scary thinking about that. But the likelihood is just, it's just so random. But then the so what of this passage, while we may not face execution for following after christ we do have fears all of us we have fears and worries. all of us will face death we'll all face sickness 
a, a few years ago, or I don't even know, it's been years, I had this email exchange with my dad, and the way he worded something was just sort of like I'm in charge of caring for him as he gets old, so there's been these conversations. And he, he, he said, well, there's nothing terminal is going on right now, but it's only a matter of time. And it was just sort of like, that's the truth for all of us. Like, you might be healthy, have use of everything, all your, your ears, your eyes, your hands, your legs, but it's only a matter of time before you wear out. And, and, and I, if we're on it, like, that's kind of a scary thing. I've never died before. I, I, don't know what's, I don't know what it's like. You've never talked to anybody who's died before. You've talked to people along the, the journey of death, maybe even at the last moment, but you've never talked to them after. There's finances. There, like, I mean, we could spend, if I, we really wanted to have fun, we could spend, like, we could have a whole conference that would last a whole month just naming our fears. And that song, Count Your Blessings, name them one by one. If we count your fears, name them one by one. We'd be here for a long time. And Jesus says, don't fear. You have a creator. You might have been a surprise to your parents, but you weren't a surprise to him. Before the foundation of the world, he knew who you'd be. He, He formed your inward parts. This life that you've been given has been given by him. Our bodies are breaking down. We will die. But he says, take courage. Don't fear. Don't worry about that. You have a father in heaven who cares for you. He's assigned a number to every single one of the hairs on your head. It's going to be okay. You can trust me. And the pages of the Bible, if they don't scream anything else, they scream, trust me, trust me, trust me. We're going to take communion today. And really for the next few weeks, communion will be available. It won't be done sort of how we've, I'm not quite sure how it's going to work out, but we're we're not going to sing like two songs every week. It's just going to be like communion will be here. And if you want to take communion over the next few weeks, because this second discourse really big jesus is going to tighten down the screws on them and and he's going to share with them openly of the cost of what it means to follow him in this life but but as we look at those we can't forget about this do not fear do not fear do not fear if you have a close relationship with god if you know god if you um, know him as your father and intimately there's nothing in this life that can that can shake your boat that can that can make you nervous it fascinates me, and I, I, I want to say this very gently. I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't want to be like this is not meant to be offensive. But I've noticed that in the, especially in the United States, that, that there, there is like a culture of fear amongst Christians. Like all you have to just do is start talking end times, prophecy, moons, all of these things. And I'm not saying that any of these things aren't. I'm not. I'm not saying anything of their validity or anything like that. But Christians are almost running around frantically stockpiling, loading up their shotgun shells, preparing for like just fear. And when I look at the scripture and I see anything referenced to end times and the, the, the three dollar theological term of eschatology dealing with the end. All of it's given so that God's followers would have peace. That that you can walk into the apocalypse with Nothing. T-shirt and shorts and flip-flops, just so that you're appropriately dressed. You know, you don't want to be impure, you know. 
But if God is God, I'm ready. He'll take care of me. He loves me. Satan wants to get us all wrapped. What if, what if, what if? How can he go to the Israel? Like, what if, what if the war happens? What if I get shot right here? What if I, what if I don't see a car and I get blindsided? What if all of a sudden my heart just stops? What if, like, what if? Satan uses that and wants to just freeze us so that we don't live. God says, I have control. You can trust me. If you die, you die. You're with me. Paul says, to die is gain. Paul says, I would really rather just die and go spend eternity with him, but he has me here. And so I'm sucking up this sewer of a place and I'm going to keep living for him and I'm going to keep doing what he's called me to do, but I want to be there. And so we take communion. And what is communion? Communion reminds us of what? That the king would go to the cross. Did Jesus sin ever? No. Did he commit any crime? No, never. He would be hauled in under arrest, betrayed by one of his own 12 that we read about here. We talk about the cross, but before the cross, most people would die with what he experienced before he got to the cross. That is, flesh was essentially torn from him from the beating. That you couldn't tell even if he was man or woman that he was so brutally beaten. That he carried his cross to Golgotha, the place of the skull, that he was, he, he was nailed there, that he was mocked, and that he died. And the scripture tells us that he did this for me and for you because he cares for you, because he recognizes that you are a sinner. Not only do you sin, but you were born from sin. You sin because you're a sinner. You're not a sinner because you sin. When Adam and Eve sinned, sin spread throughout all of humanity. And there's a disconnect. We are separated from God because of our sinfulness. But because God cares for you, because he created you, he created you in his image. The, the hairs on your head are numbered to the detail in which he knows you. He desires to have a relationship with you so that Jesus came and he did this so that your sins could be paid for. And so we as Christians, we take communion. There's nothing really special. These are, it's, it's juice and crackers that have been broken. It's a picture for us. It's, on, on one end, we, we don't want to make a big deal, but on the other end, it's a, it's a super huge deal. The Bible tells us that people are taking it incorrectly, and people died as taking communion incorrectly. But the significance of communion is that these are symbols like a wedding ring. We come to them and we take the cracker and the juice and we remember what Jesus did for us, that, that it's not about you and your good works because your works are but filthy rags, according to Isaiah. But we're reminded that Jesus paid for us. The juice, the new covenant, and we, we, are, we come to communion and it's a time for us to reflect, confess sin. Um, it's for Christians. If you're not a Christian, it's as simple as believing for those of us who are Christians, uh, our trusting in Christ sealed us, that we are sealed until the day of redemption, that we have a relationship with God. But as Christians, we still sin. Amen? Amen. I didn't hear anybody. I'm not alone. We still fall short. We still 
have this dual nature. We now have the spirit of God within us and we have our flesh and they're at war with each other. And so we come to communion and it's a time for us to, to bow our heads, to ask God, Lord, what areas of my flesh are holding me back from maturity in Christ? And then we confess him and say, Lord, I need help with this. I don't have the power to do this on my own. We're also told that as we take communion, it's a commission for us. There's a reminder that as often as we participate in communion, that we're to proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that what he whispered to us, that we're to proclaim. And so we're going to pray. I'm going to get the communion ready, but after I pray, I just want you guys just, uh, just to spend some time with God. When you're ready to come up and get your elements, get your elements. Um, but then we would really reflect to give God thanks for what he's done for us, that we would acknowledge that he's in control, that we would surrender our fears, our anxieties to him. I'd ask that he'd also show you who, who in your family, your friends, your network of peers, who doesn't know Christ? How can you be a part of that or can you be praying for them? And so, Father, we do thank you, Lord. Lord, I come to you and I confess that it's so easy to allow my flesh to get out of control, that, that fear would take over, that I seize up, Lord. Fear of man, fear of circumstances, fear of anything other than you that I would look to for comfort. And so, Father, we come to you and we ask that you would give us a renewed sense of closeness with you. As we take communion, we um, are reminded of the cross. We thank you that Christ came, he suffered, he died. Lord, I think of that worship song that uh, says, we'll never know how much it cost. And indeed, we won't this side of heaven. But Lord, I pray that you would give us a, a, a deeper appreciation, a glimpse of, of how terrible our sin is and what you went through so that we might have fellowship or relationship with you. Lord, we pray that you would cleanse us. We pray that you would help us to move forward in our, our, our walk with you. Father, we pray that you would give us a, a, a deepening sense of um, compassion and burdenness for those we know who are apart from Christ. Lord, take away our critical spirit. Take away our um, meanness towards those who don't know Jesus. But Father, we pray that you would help us to be like you that looks out amongst those who have rebelled against you and are just moved in compassion, Lord. Lord, help us to be a light in this dark world. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.